0: Welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn
1: more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com.
0: And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash podcast or the Patreon link on our website.
1: On this episode of Why Make, we talk with artist Maggie Sasso, a Milwaukee, Wisconsin-based maker producing maritime-influenced installation
0: work. Maggie's conceptual bodies of work examine material culture in relation to our collective past, using comedy and levity to navigate through the harsh realities of modern life.
1: Although Maggie has a background in contemporary craft, including woodworking and metalsmithing, most of her current work is in fiber resulting from an aha moment she had after raising a hand-sewn signal flag over her then home in Kenosha, Wisconsin.
0: Journey with us as we talk with Maggie about childhood plays performed for an audience of trees, studying with her father, maker and educator Paul Sasso, and even her husband crash testing speedboats into logs.
1: So pull on your life preserver pants as we sail through the vast creative ocean of Maggie Sasso.
0: We're here with Maggie Sasso and this is Rob Helmkamp and Tara Polkham. It's absolutely wonderful to have you here, even though you're over there. Where? Tell us where you are.
2: Well, thanks for having me so much. This is an honor. I am coming to you from my basement studio in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where it's been gray, but there's the promise of spring on the horizon.
1: Oh, Just say Wisconsin for us.
2: Wisconsin.
1: Oh, I love that. Wisconsin. Okay, we're going to get, we're going to, actually, luckily, none of our three listeners are from Wisconsin, but if
0: <laughs> we'll get hate mail from the rest of the state. <laughs> I don't think we've ever gotten hate mail. Let's, let and let's not wish it upon ourselves. So, I, so
1: before we were talking, I was trying to remember if I've ever met you. And I think the answer is yes, because I've been involved with the Furniture Society since day one as is your father and you.
2: I mean, I was pretty young day one, but then I got really involved when I was old enough to drink a beer.
1: <laughs> oh, and you actually, you actually were the student representative for the, the uh, board of directors, I do believe.
2: That's right. I was the first ever student representative. So I had to right. make up what that meant, which was really great. That was a profound experience that I had. <laughs>
0: It's kind of cool to be able to define your own job.
2: Yeah. And we, you know, I laid some groundwork that is still exists, but the the organization has changed a lot because organizations like that are just a reflection of the people who are involved at the time.
1: Exactly. I mean, um, I, it's, I've seen it go through many changes. I've been involved with it, uh, but it's always amazed me how no, no matter all the changes, somehow it, it survives. I mean, it's gone through really, you know, it's gone through periods of plenty and periods of, uh, <laughs> on the skinny, but, uh, and it's gone through periods where we've had our own culture wars <laughs> mm-hmm. and, but it, it still managed to survive. So growing out of that, so here's, so we start with the, usually the, the why make, uh, the why make question, question. Yeah. right. The question.
2: The beginning.
1: The official beginning, (laughs) (laughs) which uh, is um, what's your first memory of making something. But I think that's even more interesting from you because both of your parents are artists and uh, not to, uh, you know, preempt you, but your father is Paul Sasso. And he was the, uh, he was the, was he the founder of the woodworking program at Murray State or did he?
2: Yes, he was. And it was functional design, I believe, to begin with, right. and he morphed it into what it is now, which is a more sculptural, craft-based woodworking program. Right. I mean, he's been retired for several years now, but...
1: Right. And your mother is a painter. She is. So it's always interesting to know what you know the first experience is of a maker when their parents have such rich backgrounds.
2: Absolutely. And... I mean, obviously, that's where I, I begin. I grew up with two artists, and I grew up in rural Kentucky, um, middle of nowhere. We were in, like, rural, rural Kentucky, which is fun to say. A lot of R pronunciation.
0: Oh, the they call it BFE.
2: The Yes, exactly. <laughs> there were barely neighbors and the closest neighbor that had a kid was Jehovah's witness and we weren't allowed to hang out. And Uh-oh. so I spent a lot of time alone on an acre of land, which is now 11 acres. They bought more, you know, years. Oh, wow. and I, my parents were building our house with their hands and they were designing it and making it happen and building their studios. And I was along for the ride. Um My you know, my parents like to tell a story that when I was six months old, I was climbing ladders with nails in my mouth <laughs> because I was mimicking them climbing ladders with nails with, in my mouth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The first memory of me making is there. Is, there is no memory of me not making in a lot of ways.
0: So you were making in the womb. pretty. I much.
2: was making I was knitting myself sweaters and building little pieces of furniture in there. (laughs)
1: That's right. That must have been painful (laughs) for your mom.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. She's kicking. I mean, she's she's whittling again. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um,
2: But I mean, I, you know, my dad would have me draw on pieces of wood and then he would cut it out on the bandsaw and we would drill holes together. So I remember using a drill press and I'd put a glittery heart sticker right on the on button. So, I remember like looking at that glittery sticker and then using the crank to put down the drill press. And my mom and I would draw with water on a black table and then watch it evaporate. So, those are probably the two earliest memories. Um, And then I was never going to be an artist, I was going to be a performing artist. So, I spent a lot of time in the woods with costumes on, singing to my audience of trees. And that was. That was my childhood, (laughs) early childhood in a nutshell.
1: So actually, I'm I'm curious, uh, you know, we had a really fascinating conversation with Sylvie Rosenthal, where Mm -hmm. she firmly believed that children should run with scissors and should work with dangerous objects, um, that it's an education. Where did your parents stand on that? Oh, you were allowed to run with scissors?
2: Oh, yes. I mean, (laughs) maybe not technically. Or I knew at least to hold the sharp end in my, in the palm of my hand, you know, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, I could do all sorts of stuff early on. Um, I had a lot of freedom. I was also not a troublemaker. I like to say of myself, even to this day, that I am comfort driven and pain averse. And that has always been my (laughs) operandus modi. Um, So I they could trust me. You know, I wasn't things.
0: I guess it means you're very careful too.
2: Huh? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, that,
2: that lends itself to me being excellent with my hands and craft, you know, detail oriented
0: yeah, yeah. when it comes
2: to making things.
0: Yeah. I find myself doing stuff slower than the average bear. Yeah. But I think it comes off as stuff that I'm doing stuff a little bit better than I could, if I would do it fast. Yeah. Um, at least I, that's what I tell myself. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: I know oftentimes the things I make look better than if they were machine made. And mm-hmm. I've had to think about that a lot and contend with that because then people don't know that it's handmade and there's something important about a handmade object.
1: Yeah, because actually I'd, I'd like to continue to run down this thread of the notion of things not looking like they're handmade, even though they were very carefully crafted. It seems to be an an interesting line of thought I don't think that I don't don't think anything that overly concerns me as long as I know the origins of the idea. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I remember once uh, I was in a show at uh, Gallery WDO and I had done these torsos and I made them out of mahogany and I made them out of mahogany because the mahogany was free. But I didn't want it to look Mm -hmm. like mahogany. I wanted it to look like uh, I wanted it to look smooth, not see the grain. So I put a hundred coats of gesso and paint on them and they ended up looking like plastic and somebody said did you make those out of wood did you make them it it looks like you had them made out of plastic and i was like success that's it they don't look like they were made out of wood
2: (laughs) it worked that's what i wanted to do my father's work does the same thing he paints his wood and has the method where he uses thousands of coats of paint with the you know spray gun yeah and they always look plastic and there's that reveal of, wait, that was carved out of wood. It's crazy. No it's
1: way. Insane. Right. I guess the notion, as long as the intent is there, it really doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't yeah. matter how you get there.
2: Right. I mean, I think there's something pleasant. that There's a moment for a viewer when they're looking at something and they're like, wow, an artist spent a lot of time making this object.
0: Yeah, you just challenge them,
2: right? And and then you know if you're if middle schoolers are asking your questions, they're like, "How long did that take you to make it?" That's the number one question you get.
0: Is
1: that the productive answer, though? I mean, it's like because you would think that would be immediately. Nah. Well, it took me three years to make that piece, and they're going to go, "Well, I'll never become an artist because I don't want to spend three years making something."
2: That's true. That I mean, yeah, for somebody who has a desire for immediacy in their process then they're probably not a crafts artist. They're probably a painter or, and or not that painters can't be very tedious and meticulous too, but you know, there are more gestural pieces that you can make of course. Right. But then there's also, I think craft, that's where craft really differentiates itself is it takes a lot of time yeah. and determination and willpower and know-how to craft an object that is phenomenal
0: you mean you don't make a table in an afternoon? You don't. Do that. Oh, I mean man. you can. Yeah, yeah, but it's not gonna be
2: It's not an heirloom.
1: Ooh, ooh, ooh. We're getting we're getting into some interesting territory here, and we we've <laughs> we've just begun because you know one of the great things about this podcast is we've talked to a lot of interesting makers, but we had a wonderful conversation with Katie Hudnell, and she is a very non-traditional maker who is certainly not into, I wanna make this right, say this right so I don't really piss off Katie, but it's not about the perfectly crafted object. Right. So I think there's lots of ways to look at craft and look at furniture making that isn't necessarily about the perfect heirloom object. I just wanna.
2: You make a great point. That's a very good counterpoint to what I was saying. I mean, I think with craft there's, we're drawing on a history
1: mm-hmm.
2: of a material and its processes and people taking a lot of time and effort. But to be fair, Katie goes through great lengths, a lot of tedious process to make something look like it, it didn't take a long time to make. You know, she and so right the the objects aren't traditionally crafted to what we might consider heirloom quality, but they're incredibly well put together. She's inventing joinery. She's, you know, painting a whole thing and then sanding all the paint off and then painting it again and sanding all of that off and doing it again and again to get that look that she's going for. So even though it's not traditional, it's still coming out of that tradition. And I think they're incredibly well-crafted objects. Yeah, Like crazy mechanisms that, only she can use.
0: Well, it's just like a different level of perfection. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's almost what what was it like imperfect perfection or perfection, you know? Yeah. That, that whole just kind of twisting it on its head and almost like inventing like her own aesthetic. Yes, I mean, she, she's been able to do that by still crafting it to her perfect standards.
2: Right. Exactly. And
1: I really respect the ability to stay within a in a mode and do that because I quite frankly had to escape the sculpture to really sort of loosen up and get into a different mode because I was so I was so tight tightly wound as a furniture maker <laughs> that I didn't feel like I could let go of that until I was making non functional objects.
2: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I just think it's sort of interesting the notion of of time material and quality that most people traditionally think about the craft medium. But
2: Mm -hmm.
1: the other wonderful thing is the fact that I think we're really trying to open up that definition.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, to me, craft and sculpture are really starting to be intertwined or the, you know, contemporary craft is incredibly sculptural Mm-hmm. You know, and it it is incredibly sculptural, but it just again comes from that background of a material and its history and the people who learned how to manipulate that material in, in the most profound and interesting and perfect way. Yeah, and <laughs> perfect work. Again, whereas you know traditional sculpture doesn't necessarily have to follow those rules. It can, but it doesn't have to.
1: True, but uh, there's something about the fine arts and sculpture and painting that it just sort of puts itself up on an ivory tower. And I just think that craft artists don't, we don't have the same rules about how to approach materials and topic. We just sort of take a much more dangerous approach, if I
0: could say that. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree, Eric. I, I, I kind of look at it the same way, too. It's like art, art, art is bourgeoisie and and craft is more proletariat you know craft is of the people and it's kind of interesting because i I'm, i always struggle with am i a furniture
1: maker am i an artist do i have a wood shop behind my house or do i have a studio behind my house <laughs> and each one is just so loaded in terms of well i have a studio behind my house eh, it's just a wood shop it's just a shop <laughs> yeah i know
0: I mean uh, I, it, I it looks like a wood shop but you don't have tables coming out of it all the time so you're not mm-hmm. a furniture maker no I mean what I, are you I, Eric <laughs> we're not gonna we're gonna not answer that existential question because we're so, talking about we're talking with Maggie Sass. <laughs> well well so the so the this kind of leads into um Maggie talk about your your history in furniture and The fact that most of your stuff doesn't look like furniture or is not furniture.
2: No, it's not furniture at all. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, my father is, he's not even a furniture maker, but he is more than I am certainly, but he ran a furniture program at Murray state university, which is. And and actually
1: uh, to just to interject, sorry. You studied under your father.
2: So I, you know, I was maybe not the most studious high schooler. So when it came time to apply for colleges, I applied to two. Um, I'd taken one technical drawing class in high school and my instructor was like, you are really good at this. You are bizarrely, I've never seen a student this, quite this good at technical drawing. And I think you should maybe look into Technical drawing for engineering. And I was like, okay. So I got into Murray State University and sort of signed up for that as a major and took a class. And I was like, God, these people are just not my people. And I went to Murray State because it was free, because my dad taught there. Mm -hmm. And I decided to take one of his classes and take an art class. And I'd never really thought of myself as an artist. I thought of myself as a performing artist. And I was so comfortable in the art department. You know, it was a lot of people I knew. And it. I was like, okay, so that, that technical drawing brain works really well with three-dimensional objects. So I can, you know, pick up an object in my head and spin it around and draw right. it. And it works beautifully for that. But now I can apply interesting concepts to those forms and not just draw this thing for somebody who's maybe going to make it in a very technical way. So I, yeah, I, and I ended up going through the wood program because I was mediocre at it and because it was fun. And I think that if Murray State had had a fibers program, I would have switched to fibers, but they didn't. So I I did metalsmithing and woodworking and the whole time I was sewing um because i learned to sew in high school from my mother mm-hmm. who was very patient with me and i was quick at you know i picked it up pretty quick and i ended up getting a job at the local sewing store where i was the machine quilter so people would bring in their quilt tops and then i would use a oh, wow. machine to quilt them together to the bottom piece you know with the batting and i did something like 600 quilts in a year and a half. Oh ahead. my goodness. I, it was a lot. It was a lot.
0: Wow. So
2: in that job, I learned way more about sewing. And then I, you know, applied for graduate schools, um, ended up getting funding at UW Madison
1: mm-hmm.
2: in the woodworking program with Tom mm-hmm. Um, And again, that school doesn't really have a fibers program. So I was...
1: Well, here I'm going to have to I'm going to have to interject again because I mean it seems like because obviously we're going to move on to the whole the whole fiber and textiles thing, yeah. But you're still sort of you're pushing it to the edges. You're you you could have gone to a graduate school with an excellent textile program.
2: I could have, but I just it like kind of didn't occur to me that I was a fibers artist and I, I was making stuff out of fabric. The stuff I was making conceptually was very textiles oriented. But nobody was ever like, Maggie, have you thought to yourself that maybe you're a textiles artist? Like they're just, nobody was having that conversation and there was nobody. Yeah.
0: And you you didn't have that with your, that conversation with yourself either.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And I, I, you know, there's um, that whole concept of representation matters. You know, if you can see a pathway for yourself, then you are more likely to go down a path
0: and And um, is so is furniture the path that you saw for yourself? It was that was the yeah, yeah which is
2: why I'm in therapy.
0: that was a path that had been blazed maybe by your father, and you were like, that's oh, no, that's it. That makes sense, kind of exactly. And your
1: father sort of reinforced that or yeah, your dad, I've only met your dad a couple of times. He's a very funny guy. I don't know what he's like as a parent, but uh...
2: he's he's an amazing parent. very nurturing. Hilarious!
1: He's very funny.
2: Very funny. He's like the Bill Murray of the furniture
1: world. <laughs> he he is. Yeah. He That's awesome. Of, like That's... really,
2: you know. Um, but I
1: can't. But he never pointed out to you because no. that you know maybe Maggie Wood isn't your medium.
2: No, yeah, and I mean people were you know we talked a lot about sculpture versus craft. I did not like sculpture, sculpture because it was dirty in there. There was like oily metal, so I was way more comfortable with wood that was just you know you could just give yourself a shop shower and you'd be good to go
0: yeah air shower perfect (laughs) exactly every afternoon
2: (laughs) yeah and then grad school again there was no textiles program there is there's like interesting fibers classes that you can take there but it's in an entirely different school it's not within the art department i chose uw madison over vcu um, because my husband and I were already married and he didn't have an opportunity at VCU, but he did at Madison. Like we both were getting paid to go to grad school in Madison. Okay. And I'm like, Well, that's the clear choice. Cause I'm not going to go into debt or like be apart from each other for three years for grad school. I think had I gone to VCU, I would have found the textiles department
0: mm-hmm. and I
2: would have been like, oh, this is where I should be. Yeah. But I didn't. So Yeah. So I kind of had a crisis year after grad school and I lived on the shore of Lake Michigan in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And I just meditated on the horizon line. And then I got out my sewing machine one day and just started making stuff. And I was like, I think I think I should have been a textiles artist all along.
1: So you have another degree also from Wisconsin as well. You have an MA and an MFA.
2: Yeah, that's how that program works. Everybody who goes through that program gets an MA and an MFA. It's kind of goofy. I don't
0: know. Oh, okay. We're trying to figure that out. We're like, what's the other degree in?
1: Well, it's interesting because um, um, B.A. Harrington also went to that program, and she Mm -hmm. has an MA and an MFA, but her MA is in material culture. And um, we were really hoping somebody would explain material culture to us. She didn't really. <laughs> I
2: will. I've got a simple explanation for material culture. Oh, oh good. I love oh, yeah, it. I love it. I love it.
1: Perfect. Perfect. perfect.
2: We can do that now or in a minute if you want.
1: Oh, no, let's do it now.
2: Okay. Okay. So here's <laughs> my thing. I I took, I had never heard the term material culture until I got to Madison. And there was a class in it. And the class was actually kind of frustrating. And it turned out not to be what I wanted it to be. But I'm still very glad that I took the class. So here's my quick explanation of material culture. History is basically the history of written down, you know, it's a written history. So it inevitably becomes the history of old rich white guys, right? <laughs> because they're the ones that could pay for that to happen.
0: There's a lot of them.
2: Material culture is a language that you can use to read objects that tell you the history of rich white guys, but also of everybody else. So you can look at a cup, you know, like a glass, and you can tell, okay, this is in a post-industrialized... Yeah, right. And we were all holding up different looking cups on our Yeah, yeah. but every single object you look at, you know, there's this kind of criteria that you can go through that helps you explain what the object is and it helps you understand what culture produced such an object. Mm-hmm. And that's like material culture in an essence. Did that help you understand it better?
1: No, that actually was a wonderful and and I don't want to cast shade on BA. No, a, heard, we, 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 we didn't.
2: So academic. She gets very specific very quickly
1: she does and and actually I, I admitted to her in the beginning of our conversation i was terrified of her because her her <laughs> academic background was so off-putting too. <laughs> as what do you refer to us as rob sawdust hogs <laughs> sawdust hogs <laughs> yeah, sawdust <laughs> sounds
2: dogs. like it'd be good with a barbecue sauce
1: so moving right along yeah let's, let's, let's move down this path into textiles because i think it's uh it's, it's a obviously it's a big part of your making and discovering who you are as a maker. Yeah. You know, so Even you, now. so you were living in Kenosha, Kenosha, Kenosha. I, no. want, I, I was trying to, Kenosha. you were living in Kenosha.
2: Kenosha. Kenosha.
1: Yes. Kenosha. Kenosha. You're living in Kenosha. Actually, where is, where is Kenosha in the, well, it, uh,
2: it's in between Milwaukee and Chicago, right? Oh. The border. Yeah. It's on um, the Wisconsin side of the cheddar curtain
0: as we say. Oh (laughs) Oh my God. I've never heard that before. That's
1: fantastic. (sighs) Yeah, And it was there on the side that at the, uh, at the the border of the cheddar curtain Mm -hmm. that, uh, that you discovered what was you. It was working with textiles, which is a fiber, which is wood. Which is wood.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I'd been making things in textiles all along, but I'd always thought it was cheating. I kept being like, oh, I could make this in wood, but I really don't want to. Like that kind of problem solving in wood just sounds terrible. But if I make it in fabric, it'll be easy. So I kind of thought I was cheating. And then it occurred to me that it's not easier. That's just what I'm good at. And that's the thing that inspired me. That's the problem solving that I want to be doing.
0: Well, that's the language that you speak.
2: Yeah, exactly. like you knew
0: you knew furniture language, right? And you knew textile language, but the one that you wanted to express yourself with was
2: was textiles. Yeah, yeah. right. And I I should also say I don't regret a day of my woodworking education mm-hmm. for a couple reasons. One, the quote from Laurie Anderson: "The day my father died, a library burned to the ground." I learned so much from my dad that when he eventually passes, no offense, God forbid, when that happens, uh, he's still alive and very well. But when he does pass, I won't feel like I've lost everything. You know, I, I know the some of the things that he knew. I know the tools that he used, etc.
0: And you know how his brain works, too. And I know how
2: his brain works. Yeah, so that's great. And then also, it's really handy to know how to make um, things out of wood. You know, I can work on my house. Um, In the textiles work I do all the time, I need to use a woodworking tool or make an armature for something for to hold the fabric in place. And I know how to do all that stuff because of my woodworking background. So I don't regret it. But I felt very liberated when it occurred to me that I'm actually a textiles artist. And that's when I started to be able to explore my world without fear, without fear of failure and rather coming from a place of profound curiosity.
0: Yeah, what an what an honest thing to say and be able to discover about yourself too.
1: I just want to touch on this notion of uh, fear of failure in wood. I mean, was there something that sort of led you to believe that you were less than successful or that, that your ideas were less than successful in wood? I'm just.
2: i I always felt small in woodworking. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of confidence with those machines. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, I do now, it, it just took a long time. You know, some people would get comfortable in a wood shop within a month or two. Yeah, and they yeah, just yeah. using the machines. And here I was junior year of undergrad still like, um, I don't know if I should to make this cut. I mean, I got more and more confident, but it just felt like it took longer than it needed to. And then I would also make. I, I was very married to like the drawings. I would do a sketch and then I would make the thing. And if I made a mistake, it just felt really icky and like I was going to have to throw it away and start over.
0: Were you afraid of making those mistakes?
2: I was afraid of making the mistakes. And I think it was because I didn't know how to recover in that material. Yeah. Now that I'm working in textiles, I'm like, oh, mistakes are a design opportunity. Mistakes are you know it's like
0: a, a I got to interject real quick so our yeah. my woodworking teacher our woodworking teacher at Haywood Community College Wayne Rabb yeah. one of the main things that he used to say is mistakes are design opportunity yes. and he told us that time after time after time because yes. there there was you know he didn't want us to be one m- married to the drawing and to but to be flexible and to be creative you know both within and outside of the drawing and, yeah and the idea and that was just I mean that was really liberating to realize that it's like oh you could do a miscut but if your apron isn't exactly 21 inches long you could make it a little shorter and change the structure a little bit and yeah. it's okay
2: yeah that's okay right finally I figured out that woodworking is kind of you, you just need to be self-referential in woodworking like if you yeah. Cut something to 21 and a quarter instead of 21 and a half. Well, then you just cut everything else to 21 and a quarter. and It's fine. Yeah, yeah. But it was still, yeah, and wood, it just felt intimidating. And um, mm-hmm. and also I was in the shadow of my father, who was a very yeah. successful, very accomplished woodworker. So I would go to the furniture conference and they'd be like, oh, you're Paul Sasso's daughter. Cool you know, are you as funny as he is? Are you as talented as he is? And I would be like, I don't know. I am funny. I'm pretty funny. <laughs> I don't know about I'm talented.
0: You're like, I'm shy, but yeah, he's my dad. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 you were talking about using machines before. And yeah, I mean, I, I felt the same way. Like I, I didn't learn how to use a table saw until I turned one on at, at Haywood. Mm-hmm. Like I'd never used one before in my life. I used a circular saw plenty of times. Mm-hmm. Learned how to use that, but I'd never I'd never seen a table. I'd seen one, but I'd never used one before. So it was it was strange. It was intimidating yeah i I was off to a really slow start when i started furniture school
1: oh you know my first experience with power tools i i I cut myself and i was taking a sculpture class at wvu and i cut myself in the bandsaw in like the second class and it wasn't it was a bleeder but it wasn't terrible yeah Yeah. but i was so embarrassed by the fact that i did it that you just left the class and bled in silence in the hallway (laughs) oh
0: no (laughs)
2: <laughs> it was like oh, oh 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 man, but oh that's tough. But and I I do think that wood shops have a masculine energy to them. Oh, where they do. You really it's harder to make a mistake in wood and not get sort of ostracized for it, or at least called out. You know, you make a mistake, and you're like, what are you thinking? <laughs> you know, just this, this kind of immediate.
0: That's gonna cost money
2: yeah or just like you know better than that i don't know i don't know what
0: it I can't oh i think word, i think what that felt
2: like exactly
1: but here's here's time for our favorite sylvie rosenthal quote um, oh, sylvie, I love you that. ready rob um i i you know interestingly enough we were going to edit this out of our conversation with sylvie oh um, right she said <laughs> i finally realized you don't need a penis to turn on a no, table, saw on. table
2: saw you don't that's
1: right? uh, that that is sylvie rosenthal and Sylvia, I apologize. I almost wanted to edit that out because I thought it was rude, and then I realized it—it it is a statement that is genuinely you and generally speaks to our field, which unfortunately, for many years, was dominated by middle-end, middle-aged men that look exactly like me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> which is okay. I mean, it's you know, there it—it is what it is, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that even women. Well, I think it's changing, you know, with, um, uh, there are marriages who, you know, she's creating a woodshop space where there, there is no masculine energy. And I, I'm curious to visit that place and kind of see what that's like. And there, you know, a a woodshop's dangerous. So you kind of need to be called out when you're going to make a mistake, you know, but there's kind of a public embarrassment culture that happens that I was really uncomfortable with. So I think that it just made me want to hide, you know?
1: Yeah. It made right. me want to Although there is a big difference between a, a safety mistake and an artistic mistake. Right. Right. And, you know, again, it's, uh, I think the, the, the biggest wow for me coming out of school and starting my own studio was realizing that my drawings were just concepts. They weren't yeah. reality, right. but I was making the reality. Therefore, they became more and more sketches and less and less like truly architectural wonders it was like i left all the decisions until later you know all the relationships of one piece to another i'll figure it out later it's like (laughs) it was just a basic concept and then you could move on from there and that was the freeing thing for me Mm. in terms of uh, you know in terms of the furniture world Hmm. so you are moving into textiles what are you making what, is, what do your first pieces look like?
2: So I, the very first thing I did was, we were right on the harbor um, in Kenosha, Kenosha, and there was <laughs> an empty flagpole. And so I made a flag for the flagpole. It was really simple. It was just like a piece of plaid fabric that I hemmed and grommeted, and then put up the flagpole. Um, so it wasn't a huge gesture, But it was profound in my own arc as a maker. It was a small gesture. Um, It wasn't like there wasn't a lot of workmanship that went into it. But what was cool is it became a landmark really quickly for the neighbors. They started saying, we're the dock next to the plaid flag. Or, you know, we're just like, meet us at the plaid flag. Suddenly it became a place that people referred to. It was a referential plane. And i was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. So it just, you know, I made a gesture in a material and all of a sudden it was seen.
1: What do you think that original gesture was? Because there's something really symbolic about the notion of running a marker up a flagpole. Right. I mean, that is, that's a way of signaling. That's a way historically that people have signals. It also a flag is a statement about nationality. It's a flag. It's a, I mean, were you thinking all these concepts or were you thinking, I'm just going to take a piece of plaid and put it on the flagpole because nothing's there?
2: It was, it was a little bit of both. I'd been, um, I'd actually been in Portland, Oregon right before that. Um, and so I was seeing a lot of nautical maritime things, some maritime cultural objects on the rivers there and visiting the ocean. And I, had gotten a few books out of the library that were about charting the oceans and there were all these gorgeous flags that were drawn so i'd I'd just been kind of looking at flags and then kenosha is is a very maritime centric Mm -hmm. city Mm -hmm. um and also my husband had gotten a job at evan doing outboard engine work
0: oh wow okay yeah the engine company
2: Engines, yeah and he he's a mechanical engineer So he was doing engineering work, but he is kind of a wild, wild person and very adventurous. So his job entailed kind of by him forcing the company to let him do it. His job entailed um, driving the boats, doing like tricks with the boats, running the boats into logs, all of this kind of stuff.
0: Like really testing the physical capabilities of the boats.
2: The boats and the engines. Yeah. So the water, like water just became this huge part of my life. And so it was, it was based on the images, but it was also based on me being like, how am I feeling about water? Water is kind of a big part of my life now. I see it all the time. Um, and I don't know, like flags and water became, you know, they became the same thing in my mind. So I think the gesture was, it was intuitive, but it was profound.
1: Well, and and obviously because it looks like your body of work for the next couple of years all revolves around water and and oceans and and those kinds of themes. And it's kind of interesting because when I first looked at your work and didn't really read anything, you know, I knew you grew up in Kentucky, but I was like, okay, she's in Murray. That's got to be by uh, Kentucky Lake, right? And which is by, you know, the what is it the land between the lakes and that whole area although in that sense i mean i could tell from the maps it looks like the lake isn't that big looks like you can see from shore to shore
2: you can easily see from shore to shore yeah but i mean i did spend a lot of time going out with friends on boats and there was always a like the tragic story of the teen who was in the boating accident and died or was in the hospital you know, there was, like, lots of water stories.
0: Yeah, but every lake's got that, you know? Yeah, exactly. Every everybody of water has its tails. But your pieces don't feel lake-like.
1: They feel no. very open and vast. And yes. that's the difference between a great lake and an ocean to me. Yes. If you can't see the other shore, you right. get this notion of vastness. You get this notion of this large open space. And the beauty of a large open space is that you can sort of create, you can visualize what you want in that space.
2: Eric, you've just nailed it. You've nailed everything that I love about the Great Lakes and ocean. It's nice. It's always great when you make work and then somebody can read something that can read into it in, in such a profound, succinct way. So I appreciate that. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, in my work, I've always liked a lot of space around the objects. And I've always been interested in creating immersive installations. And that was from the earliest days of making in the woods when I would do plays for the trees, I, I it all had that kind of um, space and immersion and almost film like quality to it in my mind. So the looking out at the great Lake uh, without the waves, even, I mean, there are small waves, but it's, it feels like a, just like a blue horizon line. Yeah. And, all of a sudden, my mind was able to kind of fill in those spaces. Um, And then I, you know, I was looking at maritime culture, which is material culture. Mm -hmm. And I was able to start assigning meaning to that vastness. And what I'm often getting at in my work is that sense of the uncanny, you know, the, the supernatural or spaces that um, you're suddenly in that are kind of uncomfortably empty. And it's it's honestly to do with life and death um, most of the time. It's important to remember that we're animals and that we assign meaning to our lives um, and we kind of construct narratives and go along with our day-to-day. But at all times, there's a body of water like Lake Michigan that can so easily kind of ruin us.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Water's powerful.
2: Water's (laughs) very powerful. Yeah, exactly. Much more
0: powerful than we are.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And we we have to get in a mindset where we forget that we're so vulnerable, but it's always there. And sometimes we have moments in our life where suddenly we're faced with that. And it's those moments that I think about when I'm making my work.
1: Right. I mean, there's also, it's kind of interesting, even though the Great Lakes are not, you don't consider the power of the sea, but When you think about the vastness of the Great Lakes, and I was just thinking, you know, that great song, "The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald." Yep, infamous wreck on Lake Michigan. On
2: Lake Michigan. Yep.
1: Right. That happened. um, I think it was a a a very famous ship that went down with all hands on all hands on deck. And and that brings you know the mystery of vast spaces is too. Not not only is there a can you paint something in, but there's like you were saying, there's there's a mystery to those spaces because you're out there in the unknown and anything can happen and vulnerability, maybe that's maybe that's the key
2: that yeah, I think vulnerability is the big one. Yeah, the um, the winds can shift really quickly on Lake Michigan.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So that's why it's one of the most lake wreck ridden (laughs) or boat wreck ridden lakes, um, certainly in North America, because it's just an incredibly dangerous body of water. Right. And it looks pretty, you know, like from a distance, it looks cute. and it's. But then you kind of like imagine yourself getting out there.
0: Most water looks really, really nice and neat and cute until you get in it. And you're like, oh, those waves only looked like four feet tall and they're eight. And exactly. I just got bowled over by them.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
2: And as a person who's comfort driven and pain averse, I don't like that.
1: So does that, is that sense of safety, uh, sort of derive it, you know, uh, result in, in all the images of life preservers and life rings in your work?
2: Yes, that's exactly where it comes from. But but the other part about my work is that it's, it's about life and death, but it's also about um, comedy and levity. So like, even though we're faced with life and death situations, there also has to be comedy to it. So there's um, one piece that I made That's a life preserver that has pants sewn into it. Okay. It's so funny. And it's, it's from an object Mm -hmm. that I saw in a museum um, in Norfolk. And so it was like a Navy attempt at a new kind of lifesaver where it was, so it was like a life preserver with pants sewn in it. And I just, it didn't last. It didn't work. This was a failure of an idea.
1: But it could have been a great fashion statement if you could have imagined people walking around downtown Norfolk wearing life <laughs> <Yeah>. preserver pants. <laughs>
2: exactly. Yeah, and I just was—I was imagining the comedy of like somebody's drowning, and they lower this hilarious-looking device, and like just climb into the pants, and we'll pull you up.
0: Bring out the pants.
2: And yeah, it brings out the the slapstick comedy brain. Like, how am I supposed to climb into these pants? There's like all these ropes in the way, so. You know, looking at an object like that, and it's very much about being in that powerful, horrific moment, but then having this kind of hilarious object to assist you out of that situation. And that's like the way I like to live my life. It's horrible. There's life and death, but you got to laugh about it.
1: Well, I mean, you know, considering that we're living life in a pandemic right now, Um, that that's affected most of us. I think humor is the only way forward. And it walks hand in hand with
0: tragedy and um, finding that balance between the two is hard. And you, you really do it well with your work. I mean, it, you yeah. know, finding that, I mean, to make people at once be horrified, but then also smile, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a, it's a tough balancing act. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah.
1: Which is interesting. Cause you know, I was looking at your dad's work, and I saw his piece, uh, Trouble, mm-hmm. and it's got the life preservers yeah. and the, and it's very humorous in the lobster thing. And it's like, which came first, you doing, you experimenting with those shapes and your dad, or did you both arrive at it separately?
2: We, I mean, he made that piece before I made any of this work, but I hadn't, I'd forgotten about that piece completely. So no doubt it influenced me but I certainly came to it through my own life experiences Mm -hmm. in a very direct narrative way. I mean, he grew up on a great Lake as well. So, you know, he grew up in Windsor, Ontario Mm -hmm. is fun fact South of Detroit. Gotta love that. Yeah. So, you know, I think, and it's, it's, it's in pop culture, of course, you know, it's a, I love the maritime aesthetic because it's so flexible. You know, you can think about, really um, gigantic, atmospherical paintings. Um, or you can think about musicals from the 1940s, where there, are you know, women tap dancing in cute little navy uniforms, and it's all kind of under the same umbrella. So I love exploring that aesthetic.
1: And it's also been the source of narratives since the, you know, the beginning of time and some wonderfully fantastical narratives, you know, uh, you know, thinking of Jules Verne and 10,000 leagues under the sea and all these sort of wonderful things all based on the mystery of the ocean.
2: Exactly.
0: But then that intersects with stories into shanties and songs and, you know, I mean, and all that is within like a narrative and telling stories about this giant Blue monster that takes up seventy one percent of the earth, <laughs> you know. It's like, it's like, but it's not a monster. It's also life.
1: <laughs> absolutely right, and obviously, narrative is a big part of these pieces. Huge
2: part of these pieces, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, everyone has a story behind it. That's a personal narrative of some sort. Like my husband running boats into logs, um, <laughs> and there, you know, there are sadder stories too. Um, there's my I don't know if we want to go into this story or not the sad story of my neighbor
0: (laughs) I mean we can because I mean even just you mentioning it I mean it's obviously had some effect on you
2: yeah it was it was a pretty profound moment um so we had this amazing neighbor named Fred and he we like to joke that he was the one that taught us how to be a Wisconsin neighbor Mm -hmm. he would always be out there with a beer for us when it was time to now, shovel. now this snow. is where
0: maggie in in, in madison this
2: is at my, current, my current home in milwaukee okay. so we moved into milwaukee um about we spent a year in kenosha and then moved to milwaukee for my husband's job and bought a really cute house on a really cute street mm-hmm. and our really cute across the street neighbor was fred and he um, had been a car mechanic. He was retired and he wore coveralls all the time. And he was always outside doing some sort of adorable maintenance for himself, but oftentimes for the neighbors. Um, he would bring in our trash cans if we hadn't done it quite in enough time. And um, he would shovel our driveway for us with his snow blower. He was just like such a sweetheart. And he always had kind of a skip in his step and a funny thing yeah. to say. Um And one day it was winter solstice 2013 and my husband and I were outside and we heard a banging noise and I thought it was a ladder that had fallen down. Um, But we just kind of went about our day. And then I went out to salt the front sidewalk and um, our other neighbor, Mike, who we'd never met before, he was there and he was saying, I think we need help. And I looked over and I saw Fred and he didn't look Mm -hmm. right. He didn't look right at all. Um, and I was like, stay right there. I'm going to go in and get my phone. So I ran into the house to grab my cell phone. And I called up to Ben, my husband, and said, something's wrong with Fred. I think he's had a heart attack and broke his nose. I can't tell he's bleeding. And Ben, um, who's pretty good at first aid, went running out of the house. I looked for my phone and grabbed it. And by the time I got out, Ben was right next to him with our neighbor, Mike. And he just said, don't come any closer. He sh- he's he's dead. So he would shot himself in the head. And oh. it was really, it was really tough. Um, and Mike, as it turned out, was his next door neighbor and best friend. They'd been best friends for 50 yeah. years. And so it was very mm-hmm. visceral, right? Like I'd never seen a dead body yeah. before. And when something like that happens, you end up asking yourself so many questions. You know, you end up creating narratives for that person. Um, and it was incredibly yeah. sad. Um, and then ugh, luckily, because we were so bonded with Mike at that point um, that we got to hear the rest of the story had had that happened and that we never knew anything, it would have been really tough. but he he left everything to Mike um, so we got to go into his house and see what his house looked like. Um, it became evident that he'd done it very purposefully on solstice. He was reading philosophy. Um, he was reading Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. So he had a book open to a specific page. So it was more poetic than I initially thought. And in the end, I'm, I'm somewhat honored that he allowed me to be part of that process. We still don't know exactly why he did it. Mike thought it was because he ran out of money, which is so sad because everybody loved him so much and we would have just given him thousands of dollars to stay alive. Um, but, you know, he made his choices. You know, maybe it was a terminal illness that he hadn't told anybody about. We really don't know. But I I did get to start to see the beauty in it. And I should say, if, if anybody's listening, and you've ever thought about suicide, um, please get help because it's important and it's preventable. There are Techniques and methods that psychologists use that can help you right away. So you can call a number
0: um, for anybody. There's more people that love you than you know.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Thank you for sharing that with us, Maggie. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean it's a it's a tough story, um, and it it really ushered me into adulthood. You know, there were that it was it was that face to face with that dark underbelly um that i'd never really seen so profoundly and so quickly
1: well actually i mean even better said than underbelly the dark waters that the dark many, waters yeah you know, the dark waters that really a lot of us have to deal with and exactly and you know when you don't know how to cope with those you know those dark influence the dark waters i mean i think that, when, when yeah. you think about it i mean below those Below those placid calm waters are some pretty turbulent impulses and and feelings.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I mean I'd already been working with that maritime mm-hmm. aesthetic, but this was just so um I was able to apply that visual language to his story really well. And it was a you know, it was a way to help me work through the shock and impact of that really traumatic event. Um, and through making artwork, I was able to heal myself and to forgive, to forgive Fred and to become a better artist.
0: Well, and the, the experience that you were able to have of, you know, sharing the last part of his life with him. I mean, it, it, it sounds like your interactions with him before he left this earth was pretty profound. Now, does this, does this lead you to, um, you know, you said he had Niche opened, is this signaling Zarathustra?
2: Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that was the book, name of the book. Um, yeah. So I stood on my front porch, um, I made semaphore flags and then I looked right at the spot where he'd committed suicide and just sent him a message, you know, told him, told him I loved him. So that image, you know, most people, when they look at it, they have no idea that that's the origin of that story. And some people think it's really funny. Um, Some people think I'm a little nutty for being out in public like that and exposing myself to the neighbors. Um, These are just the things that I've heard. But I did pair it with the sea shanty that I wrote, um, which was based off of the first few lines of the sea shanty are the uh, original song or the it's called Holloway Joe is the name of the sea shanty. And then I kind of rewrote the rest of the song to reflect yeah. his story. So that is paired with the piece. So you've got more hints that that's what it's about.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so that sort of brings up from that experience with Fred, your piece uh, for in a boat. So, so what were, what's some of the symbolism in that piece?
2: Yeah. So I was, you know, Fred, Mike, Ben, and I had a very bonding experience. Fred was, of course, no longer around to, to bond with us in person, but most certainly in spirit. So I wanted to find a boat that kind of represented precariousness um, and then also having to work together. And even maybe if somebody wasn't there, it would be more precarious because that's how we were feeling at the time that I made the piece. Um, So the rowboat made a lot of sense to me. Um, And then there were four seats. So for each seat, there was an oar and I, it's made out of fabric. So it kind of sags out of the boat and drapes on the floor. And I more or less decorated the ends of it, like you see often, um, you know, people decorating oars, but I decorated them with maritime signaling flags so each or had a message and it told the story so fred's was i am discharging an explosive mine was or let's see mike's was i we need to seek medical attention oh my i'm getting this wrong
0: well it sounds like you've got the first two right those make sense with the narrative
2: yeah and then um then man overboard was one and then um Keep your distance, which was what Ben oh. told me. You know, don't come any closer. Yeah. You don't want to see this at this amount of detail. So that was the story um, that I was able to tell through symbols that were part of this maritime culture, and you know, the object's really big. It's a twenty-five foot long fabric boat, and it's pretty faithful to boats. But it feels it's red, and it in the space it hangs from the ceiling. And you can even rock it back and forth subtly, and it has a really pretty great presence to it in in a gallery space.
1: So, is there a symbolism to the white crosses at the front and back?
2: Those were um, those are flags that mean four, the number four.
1: Oh, okay, because it almost it almost looks like the Swiss like, flag. <laughs> yeah, it
2: does. It does. But the um, the number four is a triangular flag that has a white oh, okay. cross in it. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And I had a key on the wall that told that story. Mm-hmm. You know, it just had like the, uh, what the flag meant. And then as if it was a quote from a person so that, I mean, again, people, you know, I didn't have it written in the gallery. This was about a suicide that I saw, but people, when they hear the story, like, you know, like y'all just experienced it's um, it's a profound story and it, just makes you understand the level of meaning that is part of this work.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's the perfect story for why make because we're interested in the inspiration and the origins of ideas. But I think when you get to the gallery, Mm -hmm. I don't know whether it's necessary to explain to the viewer that because you almost want them to use their imagination with a little bit of information you've provided. Certainly. Yeah. But you know there's the personal story that generates the idea and then there's the story people generate in the gallery when they view the object and and they're both different and relevant ideas absolutely absolutely right
0: those are those are beautiful pieces maggie and it i mean it it, it reminds me and it's actually i mean talking to you has almost brought me to tears hearing it i i had a really good friend who I shared a studio space with in Asheville. um, And he passed away in a tragic accident after he moved back home to Mm -hmm. Shreveport, Louisiana, about a year after we finished sharing our space together. And I only knew him for like a year, but he, you know, he died. He, he was doing electrical work in the top of a silo on his family's farm. And he, and he, he was 90 feet up and he was a climber. He climbed, was Sherpas in Nepal and he was uh, amazingly proficient, but he got tangled and, and lost his footing and, and, and died. But, and I'm actually losing it on you. Um, but he, he actually, he meant more to me in that space. His name was Ross and I call him my Buddha because, you know, he just, there's just something about the connection that we had in the studio and what we shared. And, So I don't know. It's I I have yet to express myself through my work to do that. But seeing what you've done with your with your great friendship that you had with Fred. Oh, that's so much inspiration.
1: (laughs) Well, and I think uh, while Rob sort of catches his breath here, um, I think that sort of perfectly segues into (laughs) Life in the pandemic, where our connection with other people has really been frayed because our access to other people is very limited. Uh, I just sort of wondered how creating in the pandemic and you've become newly become a parent as well, yeah, uh, has has a has affected that because it's really it's really hard.
0: You have like a three year old.
2: She's she just turned six. Yeah, she's so great. And back to our much earlier conversation. I was looking through photos of her the other day and she had a hammer in her hand at Uh-oh. six months old. And it was <laughs> great. We love, right. were like, get in there kid. She, right. She's a maker for
0: sure. Furniture yes. or textiles.
2: Oh, all the things, but.
0: Jack, Jack of all trades.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's
0: the, the through line between you and your dad
1: and your child. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Having a kid this age, um, I think was, it was extra tough. I mean, I think it's been really it's been very hard for everybody. She was just getting to where she was going to school all day and then she wasn't. And then she was back home. So my husband works full time um, as a mechanical engineer for Milwaukee tool, which is a really cool, great job. Um, And then I, I was working at Milwaukee Institute of art and design running the textiles lab and then decided to quit that job to pursue my studio practice full time because I needed to rent a larger studio space. And I was like, man, if I have this weird little job that I love, but it doesn't pay well and it takes up all of my extra time, if if I don't like quit this job and really pursue studio full time, I'm never going to get a chance to do it again. Or if it was kind yeah. of feeling that way, just feeling like it was time. It was time for me to leave that job and get a big girl studio <laughs> and do this thing. and so i made that decision january 1st and then yeah it was back home so i went from having six hours a day to go to my studio to having zero hours a day Mm -hmm. to go to my studio which is really a big pill to swallow i just felt like (laughs) i was back Uh, back square one i had them for five weeks Boom. or however many weeks
0: and more. what's happening really so, you're kidding me
2: and then she's just back home she's a great kid but she's very energetic and she I have a hard time concentrating when she's around because she's she wants to be fully right. engaged which is wonderful but also exhausting and I have very little space I need a lot of space in my brain to to mm. make work in my studio um, and I'd also gotten an opportunity to re-exhibit a piece.
0: That's always fun. I've done that a few times too. So. Yeah,
2: yeah. And it was it was originally made indoors. It's a one fifth scale um, model of a lighthouse here in Milwaukee.
1: Yes, I've. Uh, uh, there's a. I'm looking at a picture of it right now.
2: Yeah, it's so it's 16
1: feet. It was. Tall. Right. It was a was it was originally in your show too much sea amateurs. Yes, too much sea for and, amateurs.
2: Right. Oh, too much
1: sea for oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I I've left out the word for too much sea for amateurs. <laughs> yes.
2: Which was a and, quote from a sea captain about people going out into Lake Michigan and getting into <laughs> trouble. Oh,
0: okay. That <laughs> like, makes sense. Too much
2: sea for amateurs. Stay on the shore. Um so the this is this lighthouse piece. And I made it the indoors originally. And then somebody from Sculpture Milwaukee, which is a very well-renowned international exhibition that just happens in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's an outdoor sculpture exhibition. And they were like, we'd like to show this piece outdoors. And I was like, (laughs) awesome. I've got so much work to do. So I had to like work my husband and I because he's basically my studio assistant at all times, we had to work with civic engineers and totally rebuild the interior structure to make it like a building that you can live on. <laughs> it's just, like, ridiculous. It's a, now this, like, fully wheel, welded steel frame oh, interior. Oh, wow. <sighs>
1: <laughs> and so, but it's still uh, mostly fabric, though the the exterior the exterior is
2: one hundred percent fabric. So you have no but, idea uh, weather-resistant there. fabric. It's it is weather-resistant fabric, and it was great to see it outdoors because the wind interacted with oh. it, and it was gorgeous. It was really, it was quite lovely. But that
1: was it. Built out of sailcloth.
2: It was not sailcloth. It's more like a tent mm-hmm. material. Something
0: um, okay, like water- daycron or very something waterproof. Like yeah,
2: waterproof. Yeah. Yeah, it's got like a a plastic backing basically. That's great. Um but we I spent the like every spare second I had during the first 9 months of the pandemic working on reworking that piece and experiencing the trauma of the pandemic. So, I mean, in a lot of ways I was glad to have something to work on. Um that wasn't new, but it was also kind of frustrating to be spending so much time and not making anything like any steps forward. It felt like it was all steps back in a lot of ways. Um, But that piece finally got up and we found a childcare situation for my kid. She's in like a micro pod camp where they (laughs) wear a little mask. That's where she is right now, which is why I could be at home to do this. Um, But she is gone now three hours a day. So three hours a day, I go to my studio and um I had a couple of exhibitions lined up that got canceled because mm-hmm. of the pandemic and have yet to be rescheduled. And so I but I started making without an exhibition in mind and it's the first time that I've ever done that. And I actually love it. I'm
0: It's kind of kind of freeing,
1: isn't it?
2: <laughs> so freeing.
1: The interesting thing about the thing I love about making an exhibition is that whole notion of being given a deadline. It just makes everything seem more immediate. Whereas like I'm working on this piece. Doesn't matter when it needs to be done by. Yeah. It'll never get done. Right.
2: (laughs) I know. And that's how I've always worked. Like if I didn't have an exhibition coming up, I wasn't making anything. And I just read an interesting quote. I'd have to look up who it was and what the actual quote was, but the the gist of it was: you don't have to be making work all the time to be an artist that's contributing. Mm -hmm. You know, like you as you're as an artist, you're touching people, you're showing people a slightly different way to live. Um, So you don't always have to be producing. But
1: um, Uh oh, there's the but. but.
2: But when you're not making anything. That's not good either. So, exhibition deadlines were like the only reason I made anything for several years. And then just recently, I'm like, well, I've got all these textiles techniques that I've never really explored. I'm learning weaving. Oh, fun. I've been doing it for a couple of years now, but there's so, I mean, you can spend a whole lifetime and not even begin to explore all the weaving Mm -hmm. techniques. My job at Mayad, running the textiles lab, almost felt like I had the job for four years and it kind of felt like a textiles undergraduate <laughs> degree since I got my undergrad degree in woodworking. And so I was thinking of the, this year and the next few years is like my graduate degree in textiles, just that time and space to explore the processes and to explore the concepts that are relevant in the field um, and the history. And uh, so that's kind of what I'm doing right now.
1: Um. Well, that sounds fascinating, Maggie. And it was a thrill to have you on Why Make? And Why Make? Why Make? Like, why not? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> why not? You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our
0: website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the holy pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whymakepodcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at whymakepod. At this episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.